Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We are very glad that you're here. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and today's message is from our series in Acts titled Continuation. Today, Kirk Katsorki will be teaching from Acts chapters 21, verses 26 through 29, so make sure to have your Bible open and read along with us as we get started. Good morning. Hi. All right, well, I'm going to take you from uh, that time we just had there worshiping God in song to then learning from his word. And so if you want to go to Acts chapter 21 with me, that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, As you're turning there, I do want to remind you, if you came in late or missed it, uh, there's an invitation in your bulletin to go to Don Bauman's retirement party. Don was a pastor here for 20 years and has retired, and uh, there's a party for him on February 5th. And so if you plan on going to that, please fill it out and drop it in one of the offering boxes. Uh, We would love to just kind of know how much food to make and who's coming. Um, I think Petra said that you could also hand it to one of the pastors, but I don't want that responsibility, so don't give it to me. Um, And then, uh, let's see. Yeah, just make sure you get signed up for that. And then Acts chapter 21, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And as we look at this passage, I want to give you a little bit of a contextual reminder, kind of what's going on. Um, As we've gone through the book of Acts, this guy named Saul from Tarsus, who was a persecutor of Jesus Christ, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life was drastically changed. He's going to share that story story in the passage that we look at this morning. Uh, But then as his life is changed, he goes through a time of training. Uh, He was one of the most learned men of his time, but then he goes through an additional time of training uh, under uh, the tutelage that Jesus gives him one-on-one. Paul talks about that, that he had one-on-one interaction with the risen Lord Jesus and he was taught by him, um, which is a pretty amazing thing. And then uh, uh, he goes through a period of missionary journeys, and they've been on three of them. They came to the end of their third missionary journey. They've returned to Jerusalem. Paul is uh, set towards Jerusalem, and what he wants to do is he wants to meet with the church leadership there, which has already happened. He shared a financial gift with them, and then there's a rumor that's been spread about what he's been teaching on his missionary journey, and that rumor is is that uh, Jewish people do not need to follow the Jewish law, which is something Paul did not teach, um, and it's also that that he is uh, kind of telling everyone, and they're going to say it in this passage, everyone, everywhere to abandon the, abandon the customs of Moses, and so there's some false reports about Paul that are going around different places, and because of that false report, um, there are people that hate him. Now, in order to sort of curb that hate, the Jerusalem church says, Paul, what we want you to do, we want you to do this very Jewish thing, we want you to take a Nazarite vow and pay for four other guys to do it as well, and that's where we kind of pick up in the passage today, is what happens after Paul takes that Nazarite vow with these four guys, okay? Um, the other thing that we want to address this morning as we look at this passage, um, and, and is, is hate a bad word? Um, is hate a bad word? Are, are there things that we should hate? Um, you know, like Brussels sprouts or socialism. Um, you know, uh, things, things, that, things that are lies, that uh, they tell us that they're good, but then we try them and they're obviously not. Um, obviously, I'm sort of joking. Uh, you know, but are there things that we should hate? Not subjective things like food or styles of music or what season of the year it is, but are there things that are so objectively evil and wrong that they should be hated? And if the answer to that is yes, then, then what are these things? What are the things that are so objectively wrong and evil that they should produce hatred in us? And then when we feel that hatred, what should that cause us to do? When we feel hatred, should it, should it lead us to violence? Should it produce condemnation? Should it, should it seek justice? How about, should hatred seek forgiveness? Or justification, redemption? 
reconciliation and restoration. Uh, can hate and love coexist? And so as we look at this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to answer one of the most difficult questions that needs to be answered in the biblical storyline. Is there a God who is righteous and above us that has the authority and right to hate things that we do and what we've become? And if he does have that right and that authority, how should he respond to us? And so what I want to do is just pray with me and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into this passage. So, Father, I do pray that you would get our, our hearts and our minds ready for this difficult subject, that we would, we tend to hear that word hate and we, and we turn off and say, well, that certainly shouldn't be anything that, that we're a part of, and it's, it certainly doesn't have anything to do with your character. And yet, as we go through the pages of Scripture, we see multiple times where you, your, your righteous anger, your hatred of sin is poured out on groups of people. It's poured out on, eventually, your son so that we could be saved from it. But it is part of who you are. And so, why do you hate sin, God? Why, well, Father, why do you hate sin? Why do you want to eradicate it? And then how have you gone about doing so? That's the real question. How have you gone about eradicating sin? And so we're curious to see the answers to these questions. We're curious to see how you did it in Paul's life. Uh, we're curious to look at maybe how you've done it in our life. And then how have, if you've done that for us, if you've eradicated sin in our lives, how should we live? And so we, we, we wonder these questions and we seek to find answers to them in your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so that reminder of what's going on. Paul's back to Jerusalem, and they say, let's take this Nazarite vow with these four other guys. And in verse 26, it says, So the next day Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the, the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. And so they go through this process of the Nazarite vow. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him. They saw Paul in the temple and stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. And so there's these Jewish people from Asia. This is where Paul has been on his missionary journeys. He's been going into the synagogues and sharing the gospel with the Jewish people in the synagogues. And then when the Jewish people reject the gospel, he then goes into the marketplace and shares it with the Gentiles. And so there's both Jewish and Gentile people that are believing as Paul is preaching this message, as he's preached it during these missionary journeys, uh, the message of Jesus. Jesus crucified and raised from the dead, that he is the Messiah and he has saved us from sin and he's risen and reigning. He's been sharing that message and some have believed, but these are uh, Jewish believers who have rejected that message and they see Paul in the temple and they stir up the whole crowd. It says, and they seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. And so the first thing they do is they make a big overstatement. Everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. And, and so he, he's telling everyone everywhere, and then, uh, which is a lie. And then they lie about what he's teaching. That he's teaching against the Jewish people, against the Jewish law, and against the temple. Paul was not against any of those things, but they're going to say that he is. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Tromphius the Ephesian, and this guy is one of the, the men who helped Paul on his third missionary journey, a guy from Ephesus that was probably saved during one of the earlier missionary journeys. And Tromphius has gone with uh, um, him on these, on these trips. 
and they into the city with him, and they supposed, they thought or assumed, but it wasn't true, that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so they're, they're making up lies about what he's done in the past, and they're making, about, making up lies about what he's doing at the moment with, with different people. And so the, the call against him here is that there's a Jewish court within the temple, and there's a Gentile court. And in order to go for a Gentile to go into the Jewish court, they'd have to go through a whole process of proselytization, um, and then they might be able to go in there. But first, they would only go and worship God in the, in the Gentile part of the temple. And so uh, they're saying that he's defiled the temple by bringing someone in who shouldn't have been there. Verse 30, then the whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, and here's the thing, they're trying to kill Paul, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all of Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So they've seized him, they've grabbed him, they've told lies about him. You've got a mob that's going to kill Paul. Um, they're not going to seek justice, they're just going to kill him. Then the commander approached took him into custody and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. So he asked the crowd, who is this man and what's he done? Some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. So there's different answers for that question. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. And so right next to the temple, there was actually a place uh, adjacent to the temple grounds that the Roman authorities had um, a fortress. And so they take Paul into this fortress, or they're taking him to this fortress and trying to get him in a place where he's not just going to be killed without justice. Uh, when Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So he's able to walk most of the way, but then the crowd is pressing in around them for the mass of the people were yelling, get rid of him. And so what happens here is this boil comes to a, a conflict. And as it comes to a conflict, they just lies are heaped on top of lies. And the worst is believed about Paul without any proof uh, or desire to find it, right? So we don't care what the truth is. There's no proof that he's done any of these things. We don't really even want to find it. We're the mob and we want him dead. And so when the mob dominates, what happens is, is death would rule. Okay. And so there's sort of a lesson inside of this for us that if you ever find yourself in the middle of a mob, that's just doing something violent, you should probably stop and think, should I be here? Um, do I belong in this? Um, should I be just a part of a thoughtless group of people that want to destroy someone without proof or evidence? Or should I actually stop and think? Um, but they're not going to do that. They want Paul dead. Verse 37, as he was brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? He replied, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of assassins into the wilderness? And so one of the things that was probably shouted out when they asked who is this man and what he has done, somebody probably hollered, he's the, he's the Egyptian who led the revolt against Rome roughly three years ago. Um, and so... That's, that's his question. Aren't you the guy that, that uh, claimed to be a prophet and gathered a bunch of people and tried to lead a revolt against Rome here in Jerusalem roughly three years ago? And Paul says, that's not me. Um, Paul was actually in Ephesus at that time. So Paul said, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Sicilia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. And so when, when hate takes over within a group of people, confusion usually joins hand in hand. And so if, if you find yourself hating something and you're not sure why. Again, stop. What am I doing? What Paul tries to do, uh, he tries to end both of those by sharing truth. So verse 40, after he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. There was a great hush. He addressed them. There, then when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. 
And Aramaic was the language that the Jewish people at the time spoke. The Hebrew had actually kind of left the, the normal vernacular of most Jewish people. So some spoke it, but Aramaic was the common language of the time. And so he addresses the Roman guy with a Greek tongue that he can understand. He, he addresses the Hebrew crowd with Aramaic so they can understand. Uh, Paul is uniquely situated to be able to share here. And he says, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. So he says, I'm like you. Calm down. I'm like you. I'm a Jewish man. I'm from an important city. I, I was raised... Uh, as a Jewish man. In fact, not only am I a Jewish man, he's kind of saying, I'm the cream of the crop. Um, I'm from, I'm from an, uh, a wealthy family, and they were so wealthy and so influential that I got to sit at the most important teacher of our time. I got to sit at his feet. I got to listen to Gamaliel. He was the one that raised me up. So he's, he's sort of boasting a little bit here, and he's getting their attention and saying, I'm like you. And not only am I like you, I'm better than you as far as Judaism is concerned. And so they're listening, and they're curious about what he has to say. Verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting to death both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. And so he says, not only am I Jewish, and not only am I educated and more Jewish than most of you, but I was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, I was a member of the ruling group, uh, and, and we know this of Paul. He was raised, uh, he was born in, in, uh, in Tarsus, he goes to Jerusalem, he's trained by uh, Gamaliel, he goes back to uh, Tarsus for a period of time, and then he becomes an influential member in the synagogue there, and they say, you have been selected to be a part of the Sanhedrin, and they send him back to Jerusalem. This is all, Paul and Jesus were born about the same time. So Paul comes back to Jerusalem after his time in Tarsus, and he finds an uproar in the city, and people that are believing in Jesus as the Messiah and he gets commissioned to put them to death by the high, by the high priest. He's given letters. So he's persecuting Jesus. He's after Jesus and Jesus' followers. And what he's saying is he's saying, I'm just like you, or at least I used to be. So he explains his life before becoming a follower of Jesus. He was Jewish in everything he did, extremely zealous for the law, a leader in the Jewish community, a hater of Jesus and his followers, and a hater of Jesus and followers to the death. Verse 6, as I was traveling and approaching Damascus, about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go to Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went to Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And that very hour I looked up and saw him. 
And he said to me, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all the people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance. And that word trance, you see it a couple times in the book of Acts. The last time we saw it was when Peter had a vision of the animals coming down from heaven, the unclean animals on the sheet, and it's brought down by angels, and he sees it, and he receives a message from God. And so when you see that word trance in the scriptures, what it means is he was praying, and he reached a point where God opened up the spiritual realm to him so that he could see things around him that are there all the time, but we don't normally see. And so that's the state that Paul reaches, and God shows him this. Um, and he said, I returned to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him telling me. So Jesus appears to him, hurry up and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who you believed. I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of all who killed him. He said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so what happens is Paul, he is this man uh, who is after Jesus and after his followers, to the death. He believes that he is serving God. He believes that Jesus is not the Messiah. He believes that this, this thing called the way that Christians are following uh, is, is a, a cult. It's a wrong teaching about who God is, and they should be persecuted, and the teaching should be wiped out. And then Jesus met Paul. Uh, Jesus showed up to Paul and he showed Paul his blindness and his hate. Uh, he showed Paul how he was blind about who God is, about who Jesus is, and he showed him his hatred. Uh, Jesus and his followers were the object of Paul's hate and it led him to murder them. Uh, Jesus paved a new path for Paul. Jesus opened Paul's eyes to grace and truth. He gave him faith, hope, and love. He made him a missionary to the Gentiles. And so what Paul is saying to the crowd is he's saying, I'm not, I wasn't following my own desire or my own will or my own direction in this. Rather, I'm doing the will of God as revealed by his son, Jesus. I thought that I was doing God's will when I persecuted him, Jesus and his followers. And then Jesus showed up to me and I realized how backwards and upside down my life was. And so God showed me a new way. Jesus came to me and he is the one who gave me this new direction. He's saying, I was guilty as a Jesus hater, but Jesus loved me and transformed me. He's saying, I was, I was deserving of God's wrath, yet Jesus reached out to me with blinding light to redeem, reconcile, and restore me and to give me purpose. And the people respond, verse 22, they listen to him up to this point. Then they raise their voices shouting, wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And so the people, they hate Paul and they hate this message, but not because Paul is a changed man. They hate this message because it implies that they need to repent and be changed. The implication, he's saying, I was like you. I believed like you. In fact, I was more Jewish than you. I was better trained than you. I was a better persecutor of these people than you were. And then Jesus showed up and he changed me. And what I thought was the truth, I realized to be a lie. What I thought to be a good direction of my life, I realized to be wholly in the opposite direction of God's will. And But Jesus, he showed me that and he changed me. And, and, and so I was deserving of his wrath, but what he did is he saved me. And the implication for the crowd is, 
That's who you are too. You're upside down. You're backwards. Your rejection of Jesus as the Messiah is a total miss of God's plan. You need to repent from it. You're broken. You're wrong. Your hatred directed towards me is actually directed towards Jesus. But he wants to save you from that. But you have to repent. You have to change your mind. You have to recognize your flaws and your failures and your brokenness. And this is where the gospel becomes so confrontational to us. Because when Jesus shows up in our life, it is a train wreck. He shows up and he walks in and he goes, this place is an absolute mess and it's got to change. Walks into the center of your heart and says, this place is an absolute mess and it's got to change. You are fundamentally broken at the core. Your approach towards God and your belief that you can call the shots for yourself, 100% wrong. You need to trust that God is God and you are not. You need to turn your life around. You can't live this way anymore. And so what he does is Jesus shows up with a mirror and he, and he, and he gets out the, high, the, the, the sharper and he circles all the places on you that are wrong. He circles all the places on me that are wrong. And when he does that... You, you can do one of two things. We don't understand. Paul doesn't go into him saying, I believe that Jesus was right. He just says, this is obvious. I did it. Right. But, you know, when we think about the gospel, sometimes we go, you know, two plus two is four. Like you, you understand that there's brokenness and you understand that there's a God. Uh, so is, shouldn't this be easy? But two plus two isn't four. Because what, what two plus two is, it's two plus two is you're broken. You're messed up. You've been approaching God wrong. You need to repent. And so when you get the end of the equation, you go, man, this hurts a little. But the truth about who God is, is he loves us too much to leave us there. He loves us too much to leave us walking away from him. He loves us too much to let us keep going the wrong direction. But in the case of these people, the blinding light of the gospel is in their eyes and they cry for it to be turned off. Turn it off. Leave us in darkness. We prefer the dark. In fact, they're so prideful that they miss out on what God is doing because they hate to be wrong. And they really believe they're right. Verse 23, as they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing him to be interrogated with a scourge as they discover the reason why they were shouting against him like this. So verse 23, they're yelling and flinging aside their garments, throwing dust into the air. This is a, they're, they're ripping off their clothes. They're saying he's a blasphemer with their actions. Paul is a blasphemer. This isn't who God is. And then the commander, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing him to be interrogated with a scourge. And you can be thankful that this is uh, not the case where we live now. Uh, they're they're going to figure out who he is by whipping him. Um, so let's, let's grab the whip, and this thing's got pieces of metal in it and bone and everything, and they, they stretch out Paul's hands to lash him. And he's like, hold on, isn't there this lady named Miranda? Like, slow down. Um, can you read those rights one more time? Um, but it doesn't exist at that point. So verse 25, they stretch him out with the lash, and Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander, saying, what are, you, what are you going to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money. And in that statement is, I don't believe you. 
Um, he's saying, it cost me a large amount of money to become a Roman citizen. How did you become a Roman citizen? Or are you just saying this so we won't whip you? Paul says, but I was born a citizen. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander was too alarmed when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had him bound. Uh, so the answer to his question, are you really a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes, I was born with this citizenship. And we know from uh, history that somewhere along the way, either Paul's grandfather or great-grandfather, somewhere in his family line, they had a land grant given to them around Tarsus and in that they were given citizenship. And so when the father has a son, the citizenship is transferred to him and a couple generations later, Paul is born a Roman citizen citizen. Uh, but the commander's not going to whip him because it was against Roman law to do that. He knew that if he did that, he'd be in a lot of trouble. And what the commander is doing in this case is very similar to what Pilate did with Jesus. He's got a mob outside. He needs to calm it down. Um, how am I going to calm it down? Let's whip the guy. Let's scourge him, which was absolutely terrible. Um, and then we'll bring him out. We'll show him the man and they'll calm down. Um, and so the commander has a very similar idea. He's going to do the same thing that Pilate did to Jesus. But Paul's a Roman citizen. He says, well, hold on, pump the brakes. Um, let's Let's take a different route here. But what the mob does is they react by sh they showing they believe Paul is a blasphemer and should be killed. Uh, the Roman commander, again, he wants to appease the crowd. He's trying to calm the mob down. Uh, there, there are records in history where the commander was, or a Roman commander was unable to calm the mob down. And what they would do at that point in time was they would send Roman soldiers into the street um, and send you home with, at the end of a spear. And if you didn't go home, you got the end of the spear. We don't know if that happened here or not, um, but he had to disperse this crowd some way. Uh, but anyway, he was trying to do it without having to disperse his army into the streets. Um, and, but at this point in time, Paul, he's secured at this fortress. Uh, it was called the Fortress of Antonia, which is located in the northwest corner of the temple grounds to await for trial. Uh, that's, that's what he's there to do. Now, as we go through this, we still haven't answered the question, are there things that we should hate and what are they? Um, and if there are things that we should hate, uh, what actions should hatred produce? And what I want to do is I want to show you this from God's perspective, okay? And I'm going to tie it back to the story that we just read. But Psalm chapter 5, um, verses 4 through 6, it says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. It says, You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. I want you to remember who Paul is. He's someone who's killing people. Uh, in verse 6 there, it says, The Lord abhors violent. That word is blood guilt. He abhors those who are, have blood on their hands and are guilty of killing other people. He hates the treacherous. That's fraudulent people who say that they have the truth but don't. And so you, you read that and you go, God hates evildoers. He abhors violent and treacherous people. And you think about who Paul is when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. At that point in time, based upon those verses in Psalm, Psalm 5, God hated Paul. Uh, when Jesus showed up to Paul on the road to Damascus, he hated him. Because he was an evildoer with blood guilt and lies on his tongue. Yet what actions does Jesus take with Paul? Jesus' hatred of sin causes him to seek and save the lost. Jesus' hatred of sin causes him to lay down his life for the sins of the world. His hatred of Paul actually caused him to show up with blinding light so that he could be redeemed, so that he could be rescued. 
And Jesus, he, he says this to a different way to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is asking some questions, and he's not quite understanding what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus says to him, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify, testify of what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and don't believe, how, you, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And at that point in time, Jesus is making a statement to, to Nicodemus. He's saying, I'm the Messiah standing in front of you. Listen to what I'm telling you. And then he says in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So he goes back to an Old Testament story where the Israelites, they're wandering in the desert. They're grumbling against God. They're, they're, they're wishing that God would do something different, uh, not, not, not trusting God in his direction. And God sends in fiery serpents. They bite the people uh, and they receive, they receive these bites that, that burn. That's why they call them fiery serpents. And then he tells Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and everybody who looks at the serpent will be cured from the bite. And what Jesus is saying is the bite that you all have, the fiery bite that's inside of all of you, is the curse of sin. And if you look at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, you'll be saved from it, so that everyone who, who believes in him may have eternal life. And then the verse everyone knows, John three sixteen: for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So what God's hatred of sin actually moves Jesus to the cross. But then he says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. We, we stop at 316. Anyone who does not, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So Paul gets met by Jesus on the road to Damascus and the blinding light hits him. He can't see anymore. And that blinding light causes Paul to see all of his brokenness, all of his sin, everything that is wrong with him. And because he wants the truth, he comes to the light. But this crowd doesn't want the truth, so they don't come to the light. They actually yell for the light to be extinguished. And so as we look at this within scripture, God's hatred of sin is counterbalanced by his love for his creation. He's like a father who loves his children. And he sees the path of his children's life. And, and he looks at what they're doing. And he says, the path of your life is leading to destruction. The path of your life is leading to slavery. And this is the story within scripture multiple times, right? Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And they, and they rebel against God. They sin against God. And they're cast out of the garden. But then God gathers a people group. And he plants them in Israel. He brings them to the promised land. And he says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. But if you want to follow other gods, I'm going to cast you out of the land. You're going to be expelled again into slavery. And they rebel against him. They reject him. 
and they're, re- and they're cast out into slavery. They go to Babylon, into that captivity. And what it is over and over again within scripture is this a picture of how we are slaves to sin. And so what God does is he looks at us and he says, I love you, you're my children, but what you've done is you've made yourself slaves. And then he sends Jesus and he says, I want you to go redeem them. I want you to head down to the slave market, Jesus, and I want you to buy them out. And so Jesus shows up in the slave market. He looks at the whole world and he says, I want all of them. I want every single one of them bought out of slavery. But there's a master on the other side and the master on the other side says, there's a cost. What's the cost? Your life. And Jesus says, deal. So he goes to the cross and he pays the redemption price with his own blood so that you and I can be bought out of sin, redeemed, bought out of the slave market, and then restored into a relationship with God as his children. And he loves us that much. But in order to receive the grace, in order to be in that place where you are right with God again, you have to recognize your faults. You have to recognize your failures. You have to look to Jesus and say, just as the serpent was lifted up to cure the the snake bite, I look to Jesus to cure the bite from sin. There's no other way. So Jesus gives his own life. He's lifted up on the cross and all that look to him are saved. Condemnation is done away with. Slaves are redeemed. The unrighteous are justified and made right. Though we should be crushed, he stands us up. The justified are reconciled to God. And the reconciled are restored as children to God's family. And so then you ask, if, if, if the, the object of hate is sin and death, and God's answer to sin and death was to lay down his life, what should the hatred of sin produce in me? If I'm going to think like God and I'm going to hate sin and death, what should the hatred of sin produce in me? And the answer is love of my neighbor. The hatred of sin should actually stir in me love of my neighbor. I should love my neighbor as myself. I should see past the sin. I should allow the light of the gospel to see past the the sin, to cut through the darkness and towards the gospel. And so, while hate's a four-letter word, it's one we can use. I hate sin and death. Because God hates sin and death. And the reason God hates sin and death is because while we live in that place, while we live in slavery to sin, what we find is that we never experience life and he wants us to experience life. We never experience peace and he wants us to experience peace. We never experience wholeness and he wants us to experience wholeness. We never experience restitution and we never experience right relationship with him and he wants us to experience those things. And so that's why he hates sin. He wants you to live in harmony with him and love your wife like you never could before. He wants you to live in harmony with him and love your neighbor as yourself. But you can't do it without him. And so he comes. And so as we embody Christ, and if you're a Christian, that's what we're called to be. That's what the word Christian means. For the longest time we were called the way, and then they get to Antioch and they say, let's come up with a new name for ourselves. We'll be Christians. And it means little Christs. If you're going to be like Jesus, then we have to say, I hate sin and death. And out of my hatred for sin and death, it's actually going to produce love for my neighbor. It's actually going to stir me to have the hard conversations. It's actually going to move me to stand up for truth, but but do so in a loving way. 
It's a transformative thing. I, I don't live for what I used to live for. Um, when Jesus, he enters into Jerusalem, he enters into Jerusalem and he, and he, and he goes in on the, the donkey and, and he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Pharisees, they look out and they say, look at all the miracles he's performing. If we don't stop him, we'll lose our place and our power. And John says this, he says that they felt that way because they loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. And so am I willing to say that there are things that I hate? Yes. Uh, sin and death should be hated. I should hate it when it shows up in myself. I should hate it when it shows up in the world. But the answer that should move from that hatred is love. The answer that should come from that place is a willingness to lay myself down, to share the truth, to live the life, to invite others into a relationship with Jesus so that they can be redeemed, bought back so that they can be reconciled and made right with God, so that they can be restored into a relationship with him. And so, yes, God is a God of love, but he also has wrath, righteous hatred for sin. And remember, the wages of sin are death, but while we were yet enemies... Christ died for us. And so that's what we want to live and proclaim. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together this morning. Father, we thank you that you have sent your one and only son, the one of a kind, unique Jesus. Um, that when he went to the cross, he went there to pay the cost of sin once and for all. I was a slave to sin. I could not beat it. I could not defeat it. I couldn't run away from it. I was chained. And when your son Jesus died on the cross, he paid the redemption price. He bought the keys to sin and death. He stands victorious with the keys to sin and death now. And it's because he is that, because Jesus, you are the one who has defeated sin and death, that I can stand here upright today. I couldn't do it without you. I'm, I, I find no point in trying. I surrender to your power. I surrender to your authority. And God, I want, I want your, your life and your spirit to uh, change me. I want you to mold me into your son's image. I want you to show me the places where hatred in me actually causes destruction. And, and, and I want you to change that hatred in me that causes destruction to something that brings life, to something that brings truth, that I would love my neighbor as myself. And so God, we worship you for this transformative death, burial, and resurrection that your son Jesus went through. We do so right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We really hope this message encouraged you to continue seeking God and know His peace. If you would like some prayer or some support, you can always text us or call us at 775-984-8787. Next week, we will be studying from Acts chapter 23 and are going to take a close look at how we can identify truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.